Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, the May jobs report out this week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. We look forward to China's PMIs and what they might tell us about China's on-again, off-again recovery. I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where European central bankers are closely watching the upcoming set of inflation data to see how sticky price rises have become. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with the May jobs report. And joining me now to talk about it, Bloomberg Global Economic and Policy Editor, Michael McKee. Michael, thanks for being here. Great to be here. Last month's jobs number beat estimates, underscoring the resilience of the labor to market despite higher interest rates, rising inflation, tightening credit conditions. What are we looking at for the month of May this coming week? (laughs) We're looking at an economy that is still firing on all cylinders, no matter how high interest rates have gone, it appears. Uh, As we speak, the change in payrolls number uh, has gone up from 155,000 last Monday to 195,000 now. I was just taking a look at the uh, Whisper Number survey on the Bloomberg, and Wall Street thinks we're going to get 237,000. We get the ISM uh, numbers, which uh, at least for manufacturing, which will give us an employment number. We get the ADP numbers and we'll have another jobless claims uh, number. So there are going to be some additional inputs into these forecasts. But right now, things look very strong. It's hard to explain the strength of the economy other than this is a post-pandemic weird kind of situation where companies had such a hard time getting people to come back to work that they are afraid to let them go. Demand is strong enough that they don't have to let them go. And uh, they're at this point going to hang on to their workers as long as they can. And let's go back to some of the data that uh, you mentioned that came out last week. I know we have uh, ahead. And and I think that indicates the strength, like manufacturing. We had a a durable goods order expecting a decline. We saw an increase. Yeah, durable goods were up by 1.1% and the decline was what had been forecast. Uh, The capital goods orders non-defense X air, which is what economists look at because it's sort of a proxy for business spending when you're talking about GDP. That was up 1.4% and the forecast was for a decline of uh, a tenth of a percent after a decline the prior month. So business spending, which had been a weak point in first quarter GDP, seems to be getting a little bit stronger. And then you had uh, 
consumer spending up eight tenths of a percent. The forecast was for five. Always difficult around Easter to put the two numbers together uh, for the two months. Um, so we expected April to be a little stronger than March because uh, Easter fell in early April. But you add the two together and you still have a consumer that's just not given up. It, and and that's in the face of rising inflation. Yes, it, the growth has slowed, but prices are still going higher. Yeah, that's one thing we have to account for here, and that is that uh, the spending numbers are not adjusted for inflation. So a certain amount of that is uh, is inflation, uh, but it is still. A, a strong economy, and it doesn't give the Fed any reason to think that uh, we are going to fall off a cliff and that interest rates are going to have to come down anytime soon. Wow, yes, a lot of strength. But uh, we are seeing some signs in, in the tech sector and the banking sector of, of maybe a little bit of pullback on jobs. Uh, many tech companies have pulled back and told recent college grads that, you know what, take the summer off, contact us again in <laughs> September. And this this banking crisis certainly has changed things for some of the smaller regional lenders. Well, uh, for, for the graduates, um, it is still a strong job market, but not as strong as it was because the categories that if you're a college graduate, you're probably going into aren't going to be as strong. Now, the real effect is going to be on mom and dad because you tell the kids to take the uh, summer off. They're going to take the summer off and they're going to enjoy it. But there are still a lot of uh, part-time jobs they could get because the lower uh, income uh, service industry jobs are still out there uh, for them. As far as tech and banking, banking is a, a little, uh, I don't want to use the word idiosyncratic because we use that so much these days, but it's a situation where you've got a couple of banks failing that have very large footprints in terms of employment and their new bosses don't need as many people because they've already got a staff. So that's a little bit difficult uh, for those who are losing their jobs there. But in the tech sector, people have been finding new jobs. And uh, the Fed has noticed, uh, I've talked to Fed officials who say, you know, we, we don't worry about tech because most of those people are very highly educated. Tech is a, still in demand. It may not be at certain companies, but at others, uh, they're growing. And so uh, tech people are getting jobs fairly quickly. Uh, and it, it isn't, at this point, any kind of crisis. And, and as you have said before, every company is a tech company now. So some of these guys will leave Google, they'll work at Ford. Well, let's talk about one very important metric in the jobs department, and that is salaries, wages. What are we looking at as far as, or what is the Fed looking at in wage increases? Well, the, the Fed's view is that uh, to get inflation running at about its 2% target, that wages should only go up about 3 to 3.5% uh, at an annual rate. And right now, they're rising at a 4.4% annual rate. And that's not forecast to change in the next jobs report. So we're still seeing wage increases as companies look for workers. And I think what's happened here is that the Fed expected, uh, and most economists did too, that we would see wage increases come down as the jobs got filled and the, the jolts, uh, job openings numbers started to come down. But that doesn't seem to be happening at this point. It seems that uh, consumers and businesses are still doing the inflation dance where you know people ask for more money and businesses are saying, well, we have pricing power. We can raise prices. And that, in turn, just keeps inflation high. 
one of the reasons we are seeing what they call sticky inflation. A nice segue into the Fed. It isn't very long after this Friday's jobs number that the Fed meets again. Yes, June 13th and 14th. 14th is when we get the decision, which uh, (laughs) is now widely expected to possibly be another 25 basis point increase, despite the fact that they had signaled pause. A lot can happen between now and then because we get that jobs report. We get another CPI report. But uh, there's a lot of pressure on what's already a divided Fed to perhaps raise interest rates at least one more time. They they could do it in June. They could do it in July. But if you're going to do it, you might as well get it over with, is uh, what a lot of people think. And so at this point, um, the markets are pricing better than 50% chance that we get a rate increase in June. I, I was just talking with uh, Liz McCormick, our, uh, our brilliant bond writer at, at Bloomberg News. And as she was pointing out, in March, uh, beginning of March, people were thinking the Fed would go to 6%. And then we dropped all the way down to rate cuts of 4.3%. And now uh, there is the possibility, if we get a strong jobs report, that we head back north towards 6. Which would be, well, right now it's 16-year high rates. So it would be uh, a two-decade high, at least. Before you and I were born, of course. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's a long time ago. We have so many graduations now. It's May. Uh, We're going to see more and more young people coming out of school. What kind of labor market overall? Now, we talked about the tech sector before, but overall, are are they walking into? I mean, uh, the starting salaries that some of these kids are commanding, and I call them kids because they're 22 (laughs) years old, it's astounding. Actually, it's kind of interesting. Um, The labor market is stronger, as we've been saying, than people expected. So there's probably a better chance for them to get jobs. And uh, certain industries are always looking for people. It's a little harder these days to get an investment banking job or even an associate law job because uh, they're not short of people at this point. And what we've seen is in uh, some categories, your starting salaries are going up, but others, they're going down. Uh, You're not going to get the big bonuses uh, or the big salary, at least not as big, in uh, starting as a legal associate or uh, perhaps uh, in the even in the tech sector at this point because they don't need to. There's um, a lot more people coming out of college for these first-time jobs than they needed before. And you mentioned banking. Bankers, <laughs> there's an excess of bankers out there with bankers, uh, banks uh, cutting back on uh, their investment banking divisions because right now people aren't uh, doing a lot of mergers and acquisitions. Yeah, and and also, uh, you know, the retail sector also cutting back a little bit or, or, or just not filling uh, positions. And those aren't may not be the desirable positions for a lot of people, but they are jobs. They are jobs, and that's one of the reasons we've had a hard time filling those jobs is they aren't the most desirable out there, but uh, they do exist. And it does help keep the inflation pressure up because if you're uh, Joe's hamburgers and you need to hire somebody at a higher minimum wage and you're going to probably raise the cost of your hamburgers. I'd say we need more hamburger flippers and fewer lawyers, (laughs) but that's just me. Michael McKee, Bloomberg's global economic and policy editor. Thank you so much for joining us. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, European Central Bankers closely watching the next round of inflation data to see whether price increases there have remained stubbornly high, too. I'm Tom Busby. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 
Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. There's a ton of new inflation data coming out in Europe for central banks to pour over. For details, we turn to Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. Tom, it's another week of closely watched data here in Europe. The energy price shock from Russia's invasion of Ukraine is dissipating, but how much of that inflation is becoming sticky, particularly in the core readings? That's something the European Central Bank will be keenly watching when we get updates from a range of Europe's biggest economies in the coming days. To discuss this, I'm joined by Bloomberg's chief European economist, Jamie Rush. Jamie, good to see you. What is broadly the trend that we're expecting for this set of data for the month of May? Well, it's kind of as you say, we've got big base effects from energy costs, which are dropping from the annual comparison uh, this month. So that's going to push the headline rate down, uh, we think, from about 7% to about closer to 6%, 6.2%. Fuel costs are down as well. So petrol is just cheaper. So that's helping as well. And then we also have some some subsidies. We've got cheap rail tickets in Germany being introduced. That's also going to push down on, on the headline and core rate a little bit as well. So that, I mean, that's the general picture. Core inflation, though, as, as we mentioned, is, is likely to be stickier. Uh, but even there, we'll see a small drop. OK, so that's something that the, the looks like a, quite an optimistic moment, uh, we hope, in this anyway. Are there any particular countries that you'll be watching closely? Because we're getting updates from a, a lot of the big European economies. Um, for example, Spain and Germany, we've seen their pace of inflation fall quite dramatically from their peaks. But the likes of France, it's looking a little bit more stable if we look back at the past few months. Yeah, I, I think actually the good news is pretty broad spread actually this month. So we're expecting pretty big falls in, in all of the big four major Eurozone economies. So um, I, I don't think there's any one particular to single out, but they're, they're all going to be seeing that benefit as, uh, as energy costs drop off. We have had here in the UK, though, a string of nasty inflation surprises. Um, how different is the situation that the UK is facing to the Eurozone? Or is this a, a, where we're, we'll see a kind of a path diverging in terms of inflation? Well, there's a couple of things. So in just, just right now, there's a bit of a difference in what's going on with food prices. Uh, we've seen those, the inflation rate for that drop off quite a lot in the Eurozone. Uh, but that hasn't happened in the UK. For some reason, it's, it, we're seeing prices going up still substantially. So that's one surprise. But I think more the, the broader narrative between the UK and the Eurozone is the UK is just much hotter. Mm-hmm. The labour market is tighter, pay is rising much faster, uh, and it means that the core inflation rate is going to stay about a percentage point higher than it is in the Eurozone through to the end of the year. Why is that, this labour market, so much tighter in the UK? 
it's, it's actually hard to it's hard to judge. But I mean, I think the the main reason is is just that the starting point for the UK economy was was better going into all this. Um, the energy support has been fairly abundant as well. Uh, and there's probably a, a bigger stock of excess savings in the UK, which has also served as a bu- as a buffer relative to the eurozone. Um, so I, I think that it's those combination of things, uh, but particularly the it's just the way that the the inflation shock has combined with this tight labour market to lift inflation, which has happened to a greater extent here than the eurozone. When we're thinking more broadly about the state of the euro area economies, uh, we've had a raft of PMI data recently, for example. Um, what sort of things what could should we be thinking about when we're thinking about the broader picture? Uh, of of the state of the eurozone economy, because of course there are these warnings of of dire recession last year, which have largely been avoided. Yeah, so I mean, if you think about the hard data, the economy is running pretty slow. Like growth is 0.1 percent in the eurozone, and it's looking like that's going to be the case for the rest of the year. Uh, the business surveys they they paint a pretty mixed picture. So we see the manufacturing sector appears to be falling off a cliff. Um, which is what happens at the beginning of recessions, and it spreads out to the services sector. Uh, Services still looking quite uh, buoyant. And so what the ECB is going to be looking for is is some of that weakness in manufacturing transmitting to the services sector, because that's what's needed to cool things off, to keep the labour market from tightening further, and for wage growth to start settling and inflation start to fall back. So it's just a matter of extent. The danger is that they overshoot, and the services sector starts to tank as well. Mm, of course, that's a challenge that many central banks are facing. You mentioned the ECB there. We've been hearing from a host of ECB policymakers in recent days, not least the ECB president, Christine Lagarde, who said that they will bring rates to, quote, sufficiently restricted levels and keep them at those levels for as long as necessary to return inflation to target. The Bundesbank president, Joachim Nagel, saying the course of monetary policy tightening has not yet come to an end. But I wanted to bring you a little flavour of what the Bank of France governor, François Viroy de Gallo, had to say, speaking in Paris last week. I expect, seen from today, that we will be at the terminal rate not later than by summer. As you know, summer in Europe is a long and beautiful season, which starts in June and ends in September. In the meantime, we have three possible governing councils, either for hiking or pausing. Hats off to François-Villard de Gallo to manage to um, flag the lovely long summers one gets, particularly in places like France. As someone who lived in Paris for a very long time, I can attest to the fact that it does largely shut down in August. Look, he was making a point that they have quite a few meetings to go before they would consider a pause. What are the current expectations about where the ECB goes from here? So we're expecting them to keep hiking until July and then pause in September. Um, and I think the main reason for that is that core inflation, which is the indicator they're most focused on, is probably going to go back up a bit over the next couple of months, and then it will plateau at a high level over the summer, which makes it difficult for them to stop. So I think that that's got to be the baseline. Um, there's a possibility they feel they're compelled to hike again in September, taking rates to 4%. But we're relatively comfortable that they'll, they'll stop at some point relatively soon. What is it that's expected to drive core inflation up? You know, it's just weights. It's just the change in weights used in the basket. It's not actually a good measure of underlying inflation. Okay. Um, it's just a pure statistical quirk, and it's just landing at the wrong time. We so, are here for statistical quirks. Yeah. We're, we're, we're into it, and I appreciate you explaining it. Look, if they were talking about the ECB then, you know, continuing to hike for at least the next couple of meetings, if we see the Fed pause, how difficult, or does that make the ECB's job more difficult? Well, I think it, it, it creates a change in the global mood music, doesn't it? 
if the Fed stopped, then you're out on your own. So regardless of what these economic fundamentals justify, there's a psychology around that. Mm. Um, so I, I think that does create pressure for it, it makes it a lot easier for the other central banks to stop and they don't have to worry now about being left behind and the exchange rate therefore moving in the wrong direction for them so i, th- I think it, it does matter so we're thinking about this raft of inflation data from across the eurozone uh, due out in the coming days what are the other big data sets that we should be watching out for we're looking at an ecb meeting uh, in mid-june uh, are there other factors that we should be or perhaps key phrases we're listening out to from policymakers when we hear them well, speak I, th- I think the other leg that we should be thinking about is just what's happening with credit conditions. Uh, looking at credit supply, looking at surveys of intentions on demand and supply for credit. So we'll get a print on that just before the, the September meeting, I think. That's the thing that needs to judge. We need to try and judge how much of an impact merch policy is having on the economy. And you know, those drip feeding over the, over the next few months. Yeah, and it's because, of course, the, the lag effects that we talk about so much about how monetary policy uh, is implemented as well. Inflation expectations are, are kind of a different factor that we're now talking about a lot more because we're looking at inflation being higher for so much longer. It's been a big factor in the consideration of the psychology in the UK. How do inflation expectations in the Eurozone pan out or look like for the moment when we're thinking about consumer and business behaviour? I think it's actually one of the, the big uncertainties over the coming six months is how inflation expectations are going to change as the headline rate drops back down towards 2 to 3% because that's happening in the Eurozone, it's happening in the UK. Now, it's one possibility is that households immediately adjust their expectations, they stop pushing for higher wage growth because they realise inflation is heading back to 3%. Uh, the other possibility is that they, they're just kind of very sticky about it and they, they remember losing out last the, over the past year and then keep fighting. And the difference between those two things will determine what happens to inflation over the next year. Okay, Jamie Rush, Bloomberg's Chief European Economist. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street. Tom? Thanks, Stephen. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, never mind the debt ceiling, we take you deep inside the mechanics of the Treasury. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. As the debt ceiling takes over talks on Capitol Hill, let's take you inside the mechanics of the Treasury Department payment structure. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines. Yeah, Tom, in all the back and forth and noise around a deal to lift the debt ceiling, there has always loomed the X date, this day into the future when the Treasury Department could run out of cash to pay the bills and default on its obligations. That's something that has never happened before. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned for weeks now that that moment could come as early as June 1st. She did so again this past week. It's highly likely that we would run out of resources to meet all the government's obligations in early June and possibly as early 
as June 1st, we no longer see very much likelihood um, that our resources will enable us to get to the middle or end of June. But there has also been a lot of questions as to how exactly the Treasury gets to this date or time frame, including from congressional Republicans. Here was House Majority Leader Steve Scalise speaking on Tuesday. We'd like to see more transparency on how they come to that date. But Janet Yellen herself actually left the door open to delaying that uh, in her tweets yesterday. The comments that she sent out yesterday implied that it's June 1st or later, giving some openness to the idea that June 1st may not be the so-called X date. So haven't really been able to see a lot of transparency, but it looks like they're hedging now and, and opening up the door to move that date back. So Treasury Secretary Yellen has tried to explain herself why it is so hard to know exactly. There's a lot of uncertainty about government payments and receipts. It's hard to be precise about exactly which day we will run out of resources. So it's hard to be precise, but let's try to get some more insight now. Joining us is Victoria Dendrenu. She reports on the Treasury Department for Bloomberg News. So, Victoria, why is the actual X date so hard to know? Well, it's not like the Treasury has a set pot of money that it just gets depleted every day as it makes payments. It's got money coming in, money going out. So what it's trying to do and that, you know, that's money coming out of the federal agencies or coming into the federal agency. So it's hard to to know exactly at any point in time what the balance is going to look like. So what the Treasury is trying to do is kind of narrow down the date mm-hmm. when it's not going to have enough cash to make its payments. And to do that is asking agencies to give it more and more details on payments that can be, you know, anything greater than $50 million, for example, lately, so it can understand how much money has to go out and when precisely. And then it has to kind of make estimates about how much money it's expected to get in so that it can have a a greater and greater degree of confidence about which date is the X date. So basically, it's just not really perfect math. We're working with a lot of estimates. Yeah, it's all about confidence intervals. So basically, the time by which you're not sure you're going to make it anymore. Well, it's also been suggested, this idea floated even by lawmakers, that the Treasury can kind of pull rabbits out of hats, that they can find extra cash laying around somewhere and keep paying the bills. Is that really true? Well, in a way, that's what the Treasury has been doing with the special accounting measures since January when it hit the debt ceiling. So it's been using all these like accounting gimmicks to be able to issue debt and continue making its payments, even though it hit the limit. So it really does seem like it can't go any further. And that's that's why the, the coming week is probably the week when all, all these measures are no longer sufficient. Whenever the X date is, whether it is this coming week or, you know, a couple days after, what literally happens after the X date? I know we've never gotten there before, so it's hard to know, but surely the Treasury has to have some contingency plans. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I guess what the X date is, is the date at which Treasury just doesn't have enough cash in hand to meet all its obligations. So be they debt payments or obligations at home, so salaries, Social Security, veterans benefits. So I guess the first thing is that they would have to make some really, really difficult decisions about who they pay, who they don't pay, and how all that works. Well, and as we talk about who they pay and don't pay, it comes down to this idea of 
prioritization, right? Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has previously called prioritization just a default by another name. But it's basically the idea that the Treasury could keep paying some of its bills, like payments to bondholders, and avoid an actual default and then just put off paying others. But is that legal? Can the Treasury actually do that in practice? Listen, I think any situation where the government decides to honor some of its obligations and not others, it's going to be tricky legally. But um, it's just a question of what's the the least bad outcome. And as you said, the secretary has said that this is a default by another name. But the only kind of contingency plans we have to go by at this point is contingency planning from 2011 and 2013, where what was planned was that the government would keep servicing its debt and potentially delay its domestic obligations. So it does seem like it's the least kind of financially disruptive outcome, even though, you know, it's never happened before. So we don't really know how markets are going to perceive that as well. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting this past week when Fitch put out its warning talking about how the AAA credit rating of the United States is potentially on at risk. They placed it on ratings watch negative, And they specifically in that released talked about the idea of prioritization, talked about some of the other alternatives that have been floated, like invoking the 14th Amendment or minting a trillion dollar coin, yeah. saying that that would not be consistent with a AAA credit rating and could ultimately still result in a downgrade. Exactly, because what all these you know measures mean by another name is that the U.S. cannot meet all its obligations. So these mm-hmm. are always around it. And a, a nation that can't meet its financial obligations is not consistent with a AAA rating. Does Treasury Secretary Yellen ever comment on the idea of a tr- trillion dollar coin? No, generally she's, uh, like her predecessors, is just incredibly tight-lipped about any alternative. She always says that, you know, the only way to ensure that the U.S. remains kind of a reliable, credit-worthy country is to raise a debt ceiling. So she's been extremely reluctant to discuss any alternative. And of course, as she kind of stays on message, she's not the only administration official that does. How closely aligned is the Treasury Department with the White House on this issue? What is their, you know, consistency of communication, if you will? I I think they're like... completely aligned on this. I mean, the, the the White House is the one negotiating with the Republicans on this, but the Treasury is more kind of a, the gatekeeper of the cash, if mm-hmm. we could say that. So I think the Treasury's role here is just to stress how disruptive it would be if the debt ceiling was not raised and the U.S. had to default, and also just to keep kind of like getting the data and providing the White House with like the daily state of the cash flows of the of the U.S. so that they can know how to proceed in the negotiations. Well, and to come back to what we heard from Treasury Secretary Yellen at the top of this, when she said that she doesn't see much likelihood that the resources will will stretch to the middle or end of June, can we also touch on why the date of June 15th is important because in theory that would bring a big influx into the treasury, right? Exactly. So the, the there is a, an expectation that there are corporate tax receipts that are going to come in on the on June fifteenth, and that would help kind of tide the the treasury over for for a while longer. But I think all information, both from you know the Treasury, Janet Yellen's warnings to Congress, her letters, but also from the private sector as well, points to a date much earlier than that in the very early days of June. So it doesn't seem like there's enough cash on hand to make it to the 15th. Yeah, it, it does seem like Wall Street strategists, too, have coalesced around the idea of maybe June 8th or June 7th. I think Bank of America was at June 1, literally the date exactly, uh, that, the beginning. that Janet Yellen had floated as the, as the earliest possible. So as we talk a little bit more about Treasury's contingency planning, you mentioned how, you know, they have what they had back in 2011. But are there ways in which this moment now in 2023 would be would be differ differing than that, different than that? I mean, it feels like we're definitely getting closer to it than ever before. So that's one thing. It feels like Congress um, 
is maybe a bit more willing to to stretch it to the end of the negotiation. Mm. Um, it also the U- U.S. debt is a lot larger than before. So you know when we're talking about interest payments, when we're talking about you know what has to be serviced, that's a lot more than it was. At, 11 or 12 years ago. Yeah, I mean, we all have to keep in mind we're talking about raising the debt ceiling above more than $31 trillion. So this is a massive debt pile we are talking about here and definitely a very complicated puzzle for Congress, the White House to deal with, but the Treasury Department itself, because as Victoria was just alluding to, they're the ones that have the cash in the bags that really have to deal with all of this as we have that X date still looming over our heads, trying to get this done before we actually get to that date. Thank you so much to Victoria Dendernew, Treasury reporter for Bloomberg News. Thank you Tom, for me. we'll send it back to you. Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On weekdays 1 to 3 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. Coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we look ahead at the inflation data that's coming out of China. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. We're awaiting China inflation data this week and its impact on the global economy. For more, let's go to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Brian Curtis and his colleague Doug Krisner. Tom, investors are losing faith in China as a recovery story, and it's reflected in many data points. One, the RMB has weakened well past seven against the U.S. dollar. China's equity benchmark, the CSI 300, has given up its gains this year, and it's now negative. Debt is weighing on the economy. Growth is under pressure. COVID cases are rising due to a new subvariant, and geopolitics is stunting some foreign investment. So against that backdrop, what might we expect in the coming week's PMIs? Joining us now to discuss this is Jill Desis, Bloomberg's China Economy and Government Editor. So, Jill, thanks very much for this. So the official manufacturing PMI is projected to be at 49.2, and that would be unchanged from April. But a lot has happened uh, here, particularly over the past couple of weeks. Is there scope here for perhaps a downward surprise? 
Yes, uh, thanks. I think it's possible. Now, remember, we really only have at this point a few of uh, those estimates that are coming in for those PMI numbers. I think what everybody was uh, ultimately waiting to look out for is whether there's any way that China's manufacturing sector can escape this confidence trap that we seem to be stuck in. Um, we know that uh, the, the recovery so far has been really driven by consumer spending, but what we haven't seen kick in is demand for you know products that these manufacturers are making is for households to really kind of come out of, uh, you know, this post-pandemic period, really confident about spending on more than just, you know, movie tickets and restaurants and things like that. Um, but as of this point, we aren't seeing that right now. And so as we get closer to the release of those PMI surveys, I don't really think that we've seen a whole lot of indicators to tell us that there's going to be a giant pickup there. Is it the concern about U.S.-China relations that is holding back sentiment? Is it uncertainty about the regulatory framework? Do we have a sense of what's happening? I think it's kind of everything. Now, when it comes to U.S.-China relations, there's certainly some issues there that I think are feeding into maybe more of um, you know concerns that Beijing may be having about uh, how they're plotting out this year. We've obviously seen Xi Jinping kind of come out and try to mount this big diplomatic push, especially with Western nations in Europe um, to try to counter, you know, what's happening in the U.S. with all of these sanctions. That certainly, I think, is part of the economic pressure that they're really worried about. But aside from that, I think that, you know, China just spent three years in this COVID zero landscape with this stop start approach to lockdowns and kind of, you know, coming out of everything. We were saw at the same time, a lot of pressures, downward pressures on the property market, a lot of regulatory reform that really shook things up. And I think, you know, cause a lot of concern among people. And so yeah. we're still a bit trapped in that cycle as we move forward into this year. You mentioned domestic consumption. And when we look at the imports, uh, that data was uh, quite surprisingly weak. Uh, I'm wondering also about whether or not uh, weakening external demand is a big part of the story as well. Yes, I think so. Uh, those ex those import numbers in particular, I think were, you know, concerning, but also export growth has been slower than we would have liked, right? So when that trade data was released in April, uh, we saw that um, overseas shipments expanded, I think at about 8.5% or so from a year ago. Um, remember, again, comparing to an absolutely dismal April period in 2022 when Shanghai was in, it was in lockdown. And so there were various reasons why ports were uh, snarled for logistical reasons. Um, but what that was ultimately telling us is that that growth in April um, slowing down from March for exports is that, yes, there's probably some concern that um, overseas demand is lessening up as well. So it's really hitting China from all sides here. Jill, thanks so much for your insights on China. Jill Desis there, Bloomberg's China Economy and Government Editor. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thanks, Brian and Doug. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. 
Our data is made for more. So you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.